Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 145. In this episode, we are talking about lament and hope in the face of the occupation with Lama Monsoor. Lama is a doctoral student at the University of Oxford in social policy, focusing on the experience of Palestinians in Israeli higher education institutions. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Brandon Hurlbert and myself, Dr. Logan Williams. So this is the sixth and final episode in our series on Palestinian liberation theology. We began with Yusuf Al-Khuri in episode 140, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to some of the previous episodes, I would strongly encourage you to do so. So what did you think about our conversation with Lama, Brandon? I really enjoyed Lama's reflections about what it was like being a Palestinian uh, who enters into kind of a a Jewish-Israeli space uh, when she went to uh, university and just sharing some of her own experiences uh, there. And I really appreciated that, you know, despite uh, all of her own experiences, uh, all of um, what uh, she's witnessed over her life, she can still turn to God in uh, both lamenting and hope. And she provides us with a, a very beautiful picture of what the future might hold. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Lama Monsoor. Thanks so much for joining us, Lama. Thanks for having me. So why don't we begin by hearing a little bit about your story? Yeah, so my name is Lama Mansour. I am 26. I am doing a doctorate at the moment, doing a doctorate in the UK at the University of Oxford. Um, I am originally from Nazareth. I have lived my entire life there, uh, with the exception of the past four years. Uh, I am a Palestinian citizen of Israel, which means that uh, my ethnicity is Palestinian, my mother tongue is Arabic, but I'm formally a citizen of Israel. So in 1948, when the war happened, uh, you know, my grandfather and his, gran- and his dad, his grandfather were given Israeli citizenship, uh, but we remain Arab, we remain Palestinian. Um, so that's a bit about kind of my my identity. Uh, I did my undergrad in the University of Haifa uh, in psychology. And when I was doing that, I realized when I was meeting patients, especially in my last year, I could see that a lot of their problems and a lot of the challenges that they were facing were, of course, individual, but also a lot of it was kind of systematic. Um, and because of a lot of systematic uh, problems, they were not receiving the help that they could. So I kind of became really interested in the policy arena and how um, policymakers can basically make decisions to help inform a lot of of, uh, of these conversations. Uh, and I felt particularly drawn to education and then higher education to kind of see how, uh, so my research now focuses on Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel, such as myself, 
being in the uh, in the higher education system, where for you know for many of us this is the first time that we are encountering the Jewish majority uh, in a very real and uh, prolonged way. Uh, so we live in mostly segregated communities in Israel, uh, where Arabs live in uh, on kind of on one side and not really side, but um, where Arab lives in certain communities, usually lower socioeconomic status and uh, Jewish uh, citizens live in other communities. So really at university, that's the first time that we meet and are in contact for a prolonged time. So I'm studying that basically uh, and trying to process, I, I guess my experiences as well, although I talk to people and ask about their experiences, but I mostly, I'm processing my uh, emotions at the time and my experiences at the time of my undergraduate studies. Uh, could you just share a little bit about your own experiences uh, in undergrad? What, what were there some, I don't know, some situations you found yourself in that uh, you wished you weren't in? <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll take that question kind of a bit further back. I was born in, or I was raised in uh, a politically informed household. So my parents, my grandparents were not tied to a political party. Um, but my memories as a kid were always tainted by wars, especially the, the that happened during the summer. So my summer vacations were always kind of, um, you know, I remember summers by the wars that would happen. Uh, if it was the Lebanon war or the, the Gaza wars. Um, so it, it always felt far, but close. Um, and, you know, because I'm a, a citizen of Israel, so I don't encounter discrimination and oppression in a kind of in a very um, blatant way or in a very explicit way, like my friends in the West Bank or in Gaza who live, you know, in Gaza in, in siege or uh, in the West Bank um, in a very real sense of, uh, of military occupation. So my experiences of discrimination were more subtle and nuanced and kind of harder to pinpoint. So as I got older, I was able to, to, to see all of these things, especially on, on a policy point. Uh, so the vast gap in education budgets, for example, between Arab and Jewish schools. So sometimes I would see on the TV uh, a Jewish classroom and I would say, oh, only you know, 30 kids, we had 40 in our classroom. We had one teacher, they would have two. Um, or like the, the fields or, you know, the vast, the physical spaces, uh, how the curriculum deliberately not teaching about Palestinian history, a uh, kind of glossing over some facts and um, enhancing others. So now I understand. And I think going to university, I was struck by these gaps because in a, in a real sense of the, of, this gap because you sit in this classroom and you realize that, oh, my classmates have gotten a completely different education, have a completely different experience from me. And I, I think it's, it's helpful to remember that uh, Arab citizens don't go to the army. So we enter university very, a lot younger. Uh, so I entered university at 18. My Jewish classmates were 23, 24. They had done the military service, traveled the world, you know, and, and doing the military service is an experience of itself. Uh, so their attitude towards us was also very different, I would say. So I would hear, you know, phrases that I, yeah, that were, were very difficult, I think, 
to to come to terms with many of my professors were kind of subtly <laughs> some of them were more explicitly racist some of them were more subtly racist so when i was actually applying to oxford for example i asked one of my professors if uh, he could write me uh, a recommendation letter and he said i think oxford is a bit much for you don't you think maybe <laughs> maybe try some other place um regardless to say i i didn't want a recommendation letter after that but uh, you know these 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 things, these conversations, um, uh, and just the whole education being in Hebrew, well, when it's not my first language, was so so difficult. Uh, not being able to express yourself, I think, is a very stifling experience. Where where did you do your undergraduate work? In University of Haifa. Haifa so okay. it's in the north, uh, yeah. about forty five minutes away from Nashville. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've always wondered whether the insistence, the refusal to use Arabic uh, in uh, Israeli institutions is quite intentionally oppressive. Uh, you're not allowed to write in Arabic. You're not allowed to teach in Arabic. I know of one person I know who taught a class at Tel Aviv in Arabic, but that's because he asked all of his students because he knew they were all Palestinians <laughs> secretly yeah. taught it in Arabic <laughs> but can you say more about what what that felt like that there is um because I imagine that there is a sense in which you know the Hebrew language was created so as to portray Jews as having a unique culture who deserve their own state so it's a it's a synthesized language for a very specific political gain and I wonder as yeah as an Arab Palestinian yourself how what does it feel like entering into that kind of linguistic space? Yeah, I think looking back at it now, I can kind of understand it more. At the time, it was just, and I think this is so, it's, it's, now looking back at it, I feel like it's heartbreaking because I didn't expect any better. You know, I didn't expect them to accommodate me um, because it's it's theirs. I never felt that the space was mine. And, you know, even if you're working towards a degree in Arabic, your classes will be taught in Hebrew. Uh, so like the professor would explain things in Hebrew. Uh, so it's to that extent, the, the kind of the linguistic uh, segregation. Uh, and now I'm able to talk about it in a way and reflect on it, I think, in, in, in a way that I have, hadn't been able to. I remember the first one of the first classes I went to, I asked a question uh, to my professor and she corrected my grammar. And for the next two years, I, I didn't dare to ask anything ever again. Uh, you know, the basic things like having Arabic on the keyboards, and the computers at the university, we don't have that uh, signage. I think one of the most important uh, problems that is not talked about is administrative staff. We have a little bit more. We have three percent of of Arabic faculty of Arab faculty members, um, but administrative staff you have less than one percent, and these are the people that make the university work. So if you have a problem, talk to them, then you're done. Uh, so I, I, I guess in a very roundabout way, say that 
at the time I didn't think it was that big of a deal because I just had to adapt. We all just had to adapt uh, and not expect any better. But now looking back at it, what a missed opportunity. Um, to, and what, uh, in my research, I, I talk about deprivation lens uh, of looking at people from a, from a lens of what they lack rather than what they can give. Now I see myself as a trilingual person was so much to give, but the university kind of convinced me that I was lacking something because I couldn't speak their language. Um, and after a lot of reflection, I've arrived <laughs> to these, you know, to, mm. to this, uh, this understanding, this attitude, I guess. And is that, is that, linguistic divide reflected also to bring it back to policy um is there a difference in terms of palestinian and israeli schools and what languages they have on offer um that kind of instantiate those kinds of those social differences and eventually systemic uh problems yeah so for arab uh, schools or they call the arab uh, arabic speaking track um uh, we're taught everything in Arabic, so the, the teacher comes in and explains things in Arabic. Where my school started teaching English from first grade, usually they start maybe second in other schools. Um, and Hebrew also from, I started from third grade, I think now they started second grade. So we needed to have a command of all three languages uh, by high school. Um, on the other side, Jewish schools teach English and Hebrew. And then I think seventh grade, they have a year of Arabic, very basic Arabic. And then I think they um, they choose whether to continue to pursue that more or not. So you have yeah. to learn their language, but they don't have to learn yours. At all. And if they do, usually it's for secure, security reasons. It's like for intelligence reasons. Yeah, I was so going to say, if you're in Zahal, presumably yeah. a lot of those people need to know, know, know Arabic. Yeah, um, so I but, get but usually... for different very, reasons. <laughs> exactly. I get very kind of... Um, what's the word? Like, it, it, it scares me a little bit. Like apprehensive? Uh, yeah. Oh, I be, get, be, if someone knows... Arabic a bit too well, you're scared of them. Yes. Oh, no, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm like, why do you speak such good? Uh, yeah. You can't bond with them because they're like, you might be spying on me. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I mean, not so, spy, but they probably did something in the military that I just completely like. But you don't want to know about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But you, that's been, yeah a challenge with my Jewish friends because I'm like, I don't want to hear about what you did in the military. It's yeah. just not. Yeah. Yeah. How much, I mean, you weren't, you weren't in, in it, in, uh, as I understand it, you were, well, sorry, were, were you in an Israeli or Palestinian school? You did an Arabic track, but was it, where was it's, it? It was in Nazareth? In Nazareth, yes. So okay. the education yeah. system in Israel is, is divided into four tracks. The Jewish secular, the Jewish, um, uh, ultra-Orthodox and another Jewish track, I can't find it now, um, and uh, and the Arabic track. Okay. So those are, they're all under the yeah. um, Ministry of Education. So how much um, from your experience 
for lack of a better term, or maybe it is actually the most appropriate term, propaganda is there in um, school curriculum. And does that relate to, how might that relate to potential policymakers and policy? Yeah, so I'm actually writing about this now, so I'm, I'm still doing my research on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, so in history, we were, we were taught uh, Islamic history uh, from the very beginning of, uh, of Islam until like the end of the Khalifa, like Khulafa uh, period. Um, and it's done in such a mundane, boring way that I think it's pretty intentional. Um, and then we're taught about European history and the Holocaust. And then maybe like three classes about Palestinian uh, history, which of course is from the side of the Israelis. Um, they talk about how you know the Arabs lost the war. There was a partition plan. The Arabs didn't accept it. You know, feel sorry for you. It's their fault. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the other class, which is interesting, is civics. So we're taught about all of human rights and stuff, and the nature of the country of the state as being both democrat and Jewish. And they talk about tension, but they don't talk about contradiction. What do, you, uh, what do you mean by that? So they talk about the tension of of Israel being both a democratic and Jewish country. But they kind of resolve that tension. They say, oh, there are tensions, but they're not really that important. It's not a tension that makes it so you wouldn't call it a democracy. That's, exactly. At least that's how they, they portray it, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and someone I know kind of wrote that in their final exam about like, you know, this, this is a contradiction that a country can't be Jewish and uh, democratic and kind of cited the various discriminatory laws uh, and got penalized, you know, by the examiner in, in their, uh, you know, kind of similar to GCSEs or, you know, final exams. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, I think the content of schooling is such a fascinating topic to study, um, and now I'm regretting not having done that as my my own research. Well, it's certainly, of as you said, you're writing about it, so it's. I guess it has to be related, but yeah. I wanted to know uh, if you could compare your experience from moving to, to Haifa, moving into this kind of more Jewish space. And your and kind of the analogous uh, move to the UK. And was there similar discriminatory practices? Were there similar struggles? Uh, is it just about being a foreigner, or is there or is there something uh, maybe particularly uh, difficult about being a Palestinian moving into a Jewish space? I think I I want to be sensitive about this because it's not that British you know, higher education is perfect or it's not racist. It is, it's very white, it's very colonial. My department in particular has, you know, there's a lot that we can contend with and think about. But I there's think- There's much to improve. Yes. <laughs> hey, well, they, they did They did just finally abandon 
oriental studies so that's that's oh. something <laughs> even though even though cambridge abandoned it forever ago and oxford's like no we'll just keep the orientalism alive and well oh oxford yeah yeah i i think so on kind of just the linguistics level my english is better than my hebrew uh that's first uh just because i read things in english and kind of i don't know just have a better command of it i think so that was less uh, difficult coming in but also Hebrew has a bad connotation in my mind like it's not a neutral language that's just you know a foreign language like Portuguese or you know whatever uh, so even speaking in English I don't feel the same conflict that I feel when I'm speaking Hebrew um, and when I am speaking in Hebrew I try not to imitate their accent uh, I don't know if this should go on the podcast, but I, because it doesn't feel right to me. In English, I don't really care if I'm, you know, picking up nuances here and there. Um, so that's kind of on a linguistic level. On a friendliness level, I feel like people have their opinions here about what's happening back home uh, with Israel-Palestine. People have very strong opinions about what's happening, uh, even though they've never stepped foot. Uh, Sorry, are these, just to clarify, are these other Palestinians or are these just general British folk? Usually Americans, actually. Oh, cool, fun, 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 fun. Uh, Yeah, who just have so many opinions about, you know, politics around the world. They love Israel, don't they? (laughs) A lot of them. (laughs) To be completely honest, on both sides, they like try to, categorize you within two sentences they're like okay what side are you on um and i've had my first week here so terrible because everyone just wanted to talk politics with me and i'm like i'm exhausted um so that was really difficult but i i found people who honestly they don't care they just treat you as you are and if, if you want to share with them about where you come from and you know, your experiences, they're happy to, to hear and to have that. But there's not this combative, I don't come in with a combative stance to, to university, uh, where I'm like, the person in front of me is saying this, and maybe they have a double meaning, and maybe they're trying to insult my community, and maybe they're trying to, you know. Uh, so I'm I'm not as defensive. I'm not as... Uh, do you do you feel like that your experiences at Haifa prepared you for that for coming here? Yeah, because it was just a lot of different people from. Yeah, and I guess I some of my professors were great, but some of them were awful. Um, so it really like kept the bar really low, uh, which I mean, yeah, I've I've met some great people here, great people in Haifa as well. So what policy um, issues are you focusing on more specifically in your uh, DPhil? Yeah, so I, um, my DPhil is a mixed methods one. So that just means I both do interviews and do some qualitative work and also do surveys and work with numbers and stuff. Um, And I'm really looking at the experiences of uh, Palestinian Arabs in uh, in Israeli higher education and kind of just asking them 
about actually about three different things. First, about the experience of the transition between high school and entering university and how that first kind of semester, uh, how they experienced that first semester. And then about their kind of student experience as a whole, about their perception of the campus, of other people around them, of their classmates, of their professors. And the last bit is about the support that's given by universities. So um, the Council for Higher Education has, I think, started in 2013, a very comprehensive plan, a program, big program that costs a lot of money to support, to get Arab uh, students into Israeli higher education. And actually the rate of, of us who are in Israeli higher education has doubled in the past decade. They say it's because of them, I have my own theories. Uh, but this program basically offers all of these services, different services, um, and they're you know singing its praises. And I'm really asking the students their experiences of, of this program. And also just kind of on a theoretical level and maybe a philosophical level, these services and this program, you know, supports Palestinian students in order to acclimate and in order to uh, adjust to the current system, but it does nothing to change the system itself. Uh, and just assumes again, like the privation levels, assumes that there's something within students that's wrong and needs to be fixed rather than let's think how we can make academia an inclusive place where everyone can thrive, where everyone is enriched by everyone's previous knowledge, how we can make this space, you know, a place that's fruitful and there's fruitful conversations happening. So those are kind of the questions that I'm asking and dealing with. And yeah, I'm kind of still working out the, the, the answer to that, last, to that last question. What does good higher education in a place like Israel means? And it's, it's a difficult one. I, I haven't found an answer just yet. It reminds me of Franz Fanon in uh, Black Skin, White Masks, where he says, um, like, where France colonized uh, North, North Africa, especially in Algeria, where he, um, where people, people would love and feel so sophisticated that they got to learn French, they got to learn the language of the colonizer. And he's like, y'all just have an inferiority complex and you're playing into the game that they're imposing on you. Like it's, it, is, that, is that kind of similar to like, it's like, oh, it's so great that like Palestinians get to like totally integrate into Israeli society and like contribute to this, you know, like economic system yeah. that's like consistently oppressing them. <laughs> like, it's kind of a weird, <laughs> Is that, yeah. is that kind of like the, the irony a bit? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's actually, yeah, I think it's, and I, and I mean, there's so many wrong things in, in the way that they present it, because first of all, they assume it's because of their program and not because of just the hard work and tenacity and stubbornness of Arabs who just want really to get a good education. Um, and also, but what's happening to these kids when they come into university? What's happening to what's happening to their psyche? Um, are they developing? Are they being given uh, uh, content 
that's relevant to them. And I was talking to some students from social work and they say it's completely irrelevant to our culture, uh, the, 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 the content that's being taught. So there's a lot, there's a lot to, to unpack and to think about. And yeah. Can you just give us some examples of, yeah, what, what doesn't translate well to Arab culture? Yeah, so I'll give you, um, I work on another research kind of as a research assistant uh, for this program that is trying to, we're evaluating a program for adolescent girls, Arab girls in Israel. And one of the people who work in the field was saying that a lot of these um, girls have fathers from the West Bank and they live as um, temporary residents in Israel. And that means that they can't work uh, legally or that they're very limited in their work opportunities. They can't, they're legally not allowed to drive. You know, there are all of these um, uh, restrictions on their day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, this, this person comes in and talks about rights to work and comes and talks about you know your uh, rights as a worker and the importance of getting uh, proper documentation of everything of all of the income that you that you get and these girls some of them are afraid to say the names of their fathers because they're afraid someone will catch their fa their fathers because they're working illegally in order to feed their families so this talk about rights, you know, workers' rights is so not not relevant, but like, you know, it's... It's kind of like a slap in the face. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So they, they think that by giving girls more information, it'll, you know, solve everything. The problem is not information. The problem is systems. Systems that completely oppress and limit and restrict people um so it's things like that but they I, I think a lot many times well-meaning well-intentioned jewish citizens just look at us as poor jews like as if we're just a, a a group of jewish people but living in poverty but that's not it like we have a entire system of laws that oppress us in ways that they can't even contend with. So, so it's it's almost like the, you know, it's well-intentioned, but it's probably not well acted out, but you know, there, there's inclusion in, in a certain uh, respect, but the actual lived experience is, it's, it's not inclusive. It's, it's, it's still oppressive and it's not even close to what university should be like. Um, I, I'm interested in whether there's a, in your experience between with both more right conservative leaning Israelis and more left liberal leaning Israelis, is it is it across the board a kind of like that there's just kind of equal kinds of racism looking down upon Palestinians kind of from from all sides? Uh, I think of in particular one thing that surprised me was reading in Haaretz a really intense criticism of Elon Pape's um, 
uh, translation or he, Hebrew version of um, uh, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And I thought, this is like Haaretz. Like, this is like, people are like, oh, this is so leftist, blah, blah, blah. Um, but even Haaretz is like, oh, yeah, like, whatever. We don't give a shit about Palestinian history. It's just, it's just kind of strange to me. So I'm just wondering if, like, if politically, if there's, is there any kind of sympathy from any side? Uh, or not sympathy, but I guess, like, interest in actually understanding and advocating for Palestinian rights um, in and outside of university? Or is it just kind of no one cares? I think, I mean... Just objectively, some people are right-wing people are, and especially extreme right-wing, like Itamar Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, uh, Betzel uh, Smotrich. These are the two um, Knesset members, or parliament members, who are now projected to have a 10 seat uh, of parliament. They're Kahanists, which means that they're stood, or like pupils of this guy called Kahana, who was excluded by the um, Supreme Court of Israel from entering the Knesset like 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So it was ex super extreme. This guy, Itamar Ben-Gvir, had the picture of, um, I can't remember his name, but the person who went into a mosque in uh, Hebron and shot at uh, Muslim worshippers. He had his picture up in his living room, uh, this member of Knesset. So these types of people are just, you know, I, I can't say they're the exact same thing as the people on the left wing. I just, I just can't. Okay, the left wing misses some of the nuances. Sometimes they get it extremely wrong. Some of them are still Zionists and are proud to be Zionists and try to pander to the centrist uh centers between brackets uh communities but i can't say they're the same some people like to say that oh they're all the same no i don't think so that's just my opinion it's not very it's not a very popular one amongst you know activist circles but it, it is true um i do think there's interest i don't think there's enough effort uh and i i told this i was talking to one of my jewish friends and I told him, like, I, I love you as a person, and I, I love that you try to listen, but you you don't fight for me, and you just you just don't you don't care enough to do anything. You don't care enough to change the way you vote because you think the the cost of living crisis is more important, and that's fair. Maybe that's how you think, but that's not the way I think, and there's something fundamental that needs to, to change there. Uh, so I think there is interest on, on at least the left, the left wing. Um, a lot of the people in academia are left wing because they're more educated, especially in Haifa. But still, it's disappointing how, like the lack of action is super disappointing and super frustrating. It's like I told you my entire life story, and and in your experience in university, or maybe maybe you can talk about other things you've heard. Not obviously from your research participants, but maybe <laughs> if you have any other anecdotes, mm -hmm. did you find opportunities in the university, or are there other opportunities in higher education for Israeli-Palestinian alliances, groups, maybe courses or classes that are more oriented towards that kind of stuff, or does it exist at all? So some, 
some uh, universities try not to get involved because it's too messy. Um, but there's a movement that I really like called Standing Together, and they do a lot of good work, and it's truly like a Jewish Arab partnership. I mean, they have their faults, but they they're trying to do something, and they're popular amongst um, university students. And the rest just happens organically. Uh, if you do kind of end up sitting next to someone who maybe strikes a conversation. Uh, but anecdotally, evidence has been showing that, especially after the events of, of last year, of May 2021, uh, and the violence and the escalation, um, Arab-Jewish relations on campus have deteriorated, unfortunately. Um, very uh, because there were there was also violence on campuses, and after COVID, you know, you haven't really seen these people that sit next to you in class, so you don't even have a a positive memory. When something bad happens, you don't have a positive memory of this person. You just have what they're saying right now, or you just have their political opinion. So relations are deteriorating, uh, unfortunately, quite badly. Is that right before Naftali Bennett came into power? Uh, uh yes. Yeah, that was that was the BB escalation. What was that? May 2021. Yeah, was that I, I think I remember seeing a video of like university age students running around screaming Mavet Lalvin, which was just pretty yeah. astounding uh and shocking. And I'm sure more so to you. Um or maybe and, not and... as shocking, but but horrible. <laughs> Um, what what were they yeah. saying? Death, death to Arabs. Arabs running around the dorms. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. Saying death to Arabs. And I think what's different about that war with Gaza, I mean, there were airstrikes on Gaza for 11 days, you know, bombardment, terrible stuff. But I think what was kind of different is that Palestinians, Palestinian citizens and Jewish citizens inside of Israel, the violence was insane uh you know deadly riots happening in lead uh lead was declared a military zone you know a, a town inside of israel declared a military zone um people getting shot at uh you know arab houses being marked in haifa to when settlers so that when settlers came in from outside of town to they so that they, they would know which houses to attack and which not to. Uh, so it was there was violence, I think, un unprecedented, uh, at least in my generation. Maybe the Intifada a little bit uh, was similar, but on this scale, I think it and it broke something in our generation. I think it broke like a, a maybe a naivety or something. Um, it really changed people's views. Yes, I mean, we've been talking a, a lot about all of these issues from from the rise of Zionism to the Nakba to the Intifadas to just last year, just, you know, just this past year uh, in this series. And we've been talking about different types of Palestinian liberation theology, different types of Palestinian uh, experiences. Um, and, you know, kind of as we are closing, you know, and wrapping up this, um, this series uh, with this episode, 
I wanted to know, as a Christian, how do you process all of this? How do you process your experience your, from what you're, you're researching, um, from other people's experience? How, how, how can you process this? Yeah, so I think, I think really God was uh, preparing me for, for the events of last year, because in the beginning of the pandemic, I was, uh, I, I read this article by uh, Professor N.T. Wright uh, that he published in Time, in Time magazine. And the title is Christianity Offers No Answers About COVID. It's not supposed to. Uh, and this was like March 2020. And he talks about the concept of lament. Uh, this tradition, this practice of lament. Lament is is crying out to God and not receiving an answer. Uh, you know, when the pandemic first hit, rationalists wanted explanations. That's what he said. Uh, romantics wanted to be, you know, comforted and relieved. But he really kind of invited the church to sit in this place of distress, hurt, of suffering, and to see what happens there um, when we're confronted with the reality of the world. So when the events of May 2021 started to unravel, I think, you know, we used to, as uh, I, I'm part of the Crescent Checkpoint Young Adults Group, and we used to meet daily on Zoom and just talk and pray. And now, looking back, I realized that what, what we were doing was lamenting because we were all so tired and so distressed and so frustrated. Um, and I think, yeah, we were, I think what was different about it, it was that we were very specific in our prayers. I feel like when something big happens, you know, all of many Christians on at least my timeline or in my feed, in my feed they start saying, oh, pray for peace. And that wasn't specific enough for us as a group. We were praying, you know, specifically of names and just lamenting, like, God, why is this happening? Why are we seeing all of these videos? Why are we uh, going out into the streets and hearing gunshots and being abused by police officers and, and, and all of this? So I think we as a group and me specifically found this comfort, uh, ironically, in lament and uh, going to God with the suffering of the world, uh, of the world and just kind of laying it all there and seeing, seeing what God says or sometimes doesn't say. Um, so Christian Zionism um, presumably is based on this notion of promise and hope for a future for what they understand to be God's people. How does that ring uh, with you as uh, a Christian who also believes in God's promises and hope and considers yourself a member of the people of God? Um, what, what are some of the tensions that arise uh, for you there? Yeah, so I think... Um... I mean, Christian Zionism connects between, you know, current world events and political entities with uh, with passages from scripture. And 
does and makes this connection at the expense of people living in the land. You know, there's no place for me in Christian Zionism, in the worldview of Christian Zionism. Or if there is, I'm just an obstacle in God's way to uh, fulfilling his promises. Uh, I'm an unwanted complication. So that doesn't sit well with me. That's not God that I know. And I think Christian Zionism just kind of encourages people to, at least my experience of Christian Zionism is there's this obsession with prophecies and connecting certain words or certain phrases in the Bible to things that are happening now. And it distracts from what people are going through at the very moment. And I think this is what's so great about lament is it just says, God, what's happening now? And what do you have to say about it? And not kind of looks at the text and tries to see how can I find this world event now that connects to this thing that was written 5,000 years ago. It, it, it's almost like for Christian Zionists, you know, the religion and our, our scriptures are, you know, uh, code books, you know, that were meant to decipher. And it seems more like lament is a kind of a real and honest and a very raw relationship with God. And yeah. you are crying out uh, to him to do something, not because I mean, in one sense, it's, it's it's obviously completely fine and and normal to doubt God and His uh, ways in the world. But you crying out to Him exp is expressing that there's still a relationship worth having in the midst of pain and suffering, and that um, that to to remain silent is not what we're was not what you're meant to do, and just accept it calmly or look for the the silver linings. But it's actually meant to you know sit down and and cry out to God, you know, it's, it's like Psalm uh, 137, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, we, we sat and wept, you know, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And it's, does that, does that ring in your own experience that sound a bit what you're saying and what you're singing? Yes. Yeah. And, and I think for me, a big part of it was reclaiming that word prophecy or prophetic because it's been twisted in Christian Zionism to mean predicting the future or, you know, uh, this kind of a little bit like like magic, you know. Yeah, um, and not the fun and kind. For me, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not the Harry Potter kind. I need to give a shot. Um, but yeah, I, it's just been a part of my experience reclaiming that word and saying no prophetic means standing up for what's right and speaking truth to power and saying this is not okay like naming things for what they are naming reality in palestine for what it is you know national segregation apartheid um and that's that's prophetic in my mind and that's a much more beautiful picture than the picture that Christian Zionism draws of a God who's a nationalist, of a God that's, sorry, racist, 
uh, a God who is an estate agent, you know, dividing the land, giving this to this person and giving the other to that person. So, yeah, I, I think lament in all its pain still draws a much more beautiful picture in my mind of God and of reality. And that in itself is a form of hope. It's it's quite it's quite tragic. Well, I guess tragic is mildly putting it tragic, and also, you know, wildly horrendous that Christian Zionists and their flurry to want to up, you know, put the Bible on some kind of pedestal that they rush so headlong into their prophetic nonsense that they end up supporting a system that makes it so they can't. They're just not loving their neighbor. Uh, and in many respects, not living their Christian neighbors. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it's quite sad. I mean, I guess like to, if I were to invoke Augustine, like I don't care how much correlation you can find between X in the Bible and Y political event. If it doesn't lead to love of God and neighbor, it's wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I wanted to come back <laughs> earlier. You said the God of Christian Zionism, or you said something along the lines of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, but the God of Christian Zionism is not the God that I know. You, you know, you're saying this is a God who is a kind of cosmic estate agent, dividing up the land, pushing people out, admitting certain people in, oppressing people in that way. Um, but on the constructive side, how would you describe the God that you know in that experience? of being pushed away and pushed out and excluded and marginalized. Yeah, I think one of the most kind of powerful realizations that I've had throughout studying this, you know, the practice of lament is how God weeps with us and how God laments alongside of us. Um, and, you know, just looking from the beginning to the end, you know, when Jesus wept um, and just before the cross was 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 crying was so distressed um and and that's a that's a god th that's the god i know um a god that's who's so loving and so you know that's the purpose of incarnation of coming in the flesh to to be with us and that's the god i know that weeps with us that is lamenting with us um, that takes our hands and says, I know uh, how destruction has completely wrecked the world and gives me this conviction that creation was made for more. Creation was made for beauty. We were made for beauty. Uh, and not this Christian Zionist vision of battles and uh, people dying and people killing each other and you know, there's uh, something so much more rich in God taking our hand and saying, let's build this kingdom together, a, a kingdom that rests on values of respect and of love and of flourishing. Um, yeah. Amen. Yeah, amen. I mean, yeah, thinking about, you know, even just the Lord's Prayer, you know, your kingdom come, thy will be done. For a lot of our listeners, they might be wondering well okay yes i want the kingdom to come but what should i be doing <laughs> how what how how what's the next step i can take uh, 
you know, we talked a bit about policies and a, a very, you know, practical levels on a, on a very systemic basis. Um, and I think we would all go, yes, we probably should change the curriculum. We should have more series like this. We should have, you know, so many other things, but on a more like individual basis, you know, what can Christians uh, be doing to, um, to learn more, to support uh, you and to support other Palestinians? Um, what can they be doing? Yeah, I think, first of all, knowing what's happening in the land uh, and getting educated about the history and the current reality. I think a lot of people also get lost in the history and get so overwhelmed with the history. I think it's useful to start by looking at what's happening now uh, and what the situation is right now. Um, and when learning of that reality, to lament it, to sit down and call out to God and say, this is not good. This is not your purpose. Um, and then if you can, come and visit, come listen to people, come support local businesses and stay at local businesses. Um, people usually come and spend a week in Tiberias and then a day at Nazareth, passing by the bus, uh, maybe two hours in Cana, maybe an hour in Bethlehem. Uh, so come and sit down with people, talk to, talk to them, support local businesses. It's important because Israel is stifling local, uh, the Palestinian economy. And I would say advocate as much as you can in wherever you are in your sphere of influence. If you're a university student, if there's a Palestinian society, see the ways that you can help there and that you can advocate there. Um, if you are literally, if you're in any major city, there's a Palestinian, you know, a movement for Palestine that you can uh, support and get behind. And yeah, I, if you're a person of faith, then also get educated about Christian Zionism and fight Christian Zionism and fight the funded trips that they do and the books that they write and the movies that they produce uh, don't give them your money and don't let them take your congregation's money uh, it's important yeah lama can you just describe to us um the future that you've been hoping and praying for uh, this is such a good question because I was reading a book by uh, Jonathan Kutab, who writes, uh, the title of the book is Beyond the Two-State Solution. And I won't get into the specifics of one state or two states, but the vision he sets out there is so important because we have so many people talking about what's wrong and what's bad. But he sets out a vision for you know, a reimagining of what could be. And it struck me so much. And I, I almost got like tears in my eyes reading one of his points. And he was saying, the wall will come down. <laughs> like in his vision for this uh, new reality, he said, the wall will have to come down. And I think history tells us that walls do not last. And 
you know, regimes of, of segregation are fickle and they don't last. So the, the future that I hope for and that I pray for is one where every Palestinian, every Israeli, that the image of God in every Palestinian, every Israeli is respected and honored. And we can share this land and truly be light to the nations. Um, you know, in a, in a region that's so distraught and so filled with tension and filled with wars and other stuff that we can be a light to the nations uh, and show a different way of life. So a way of life where Jews and, and Palestinians can not just coexist, but flourish together and live together uh, and collaborate in ways that create new ways of, of that create new meaning and create new knowledge and uh, new ways of being. Well, Lama, we really appreciate having you on today to close out this really important series. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to also listening to the other people on the series. Oh, 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 oh,